Hi, and welcome to episode 6 of Qatar School Report. As always, I'm your host, John McSwiggan. So, Joanne, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, you're very welcome. It's brilliant to be here. So, could you just tell all the listeners um, what your work with TES or TES involves? Ah, yes, of course. I'm the director for the IPGCE and the PGCE, which are postgraduate certificates in education. So it's master's level study of education. Um, some applicants will use IPGCE as a training route to start teaching. And then we've got a lot of more established teachers as well who um, take the course so they can develop and hone their expertise. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was that was what really interested me, actually, because I was on Tez and I was reading some of the articles, and I think one of them had talked about a huge upsurge in applications for trainee teachers. I mean, it said England, but um, I mean, obviously, it's an indicator of what's happening right now. So, I mean, I'm sure you're on the front line of that. You've seen a lot of applications coming in. Very much so. I mean, we're slightly different in that the IPGC a lot of people do use it um, as a way to train but it can also be used for people who've got teaching experience already because it is a postgraduate qualification in education so you get a lot of people who've come into teaching through different routes who may not have had that in the UK if they're an expat or as part of their education you know if, if they're a local teacher who want that knowledge about how children learn that academic experience so we get quite a few applicants like that as well. But for new trainees, definitely. Um, I know in the UK, they think it's because it's a secure job. So teaching is seen as something that will give people a future and a career at a time when we're seeing a lot of uncertainty. Uh, so that's certainly seen the boom here. I believe we've exceeded uh, targets for applicants this year, which is really unusual internationally it's such a massive growth area anyway international schools are increasing in number all the time and I think as a result of that we're seeing more and more applicants because it is such an interesting uh, career path for people and there's lots of things you can do in schools um, you can train to teach but then there's so many opportunities beyond teaching as well like you were talking about the special needs education and I know there's a growing interest in that internationally as well um, going into school leadership, teacher training um, in the way that we work. So there's such a kind of wealth of different possibilities for people. And I think that's what's interesting and, and starting to um, create this rise that we're seeing. Uh, how did you get into teaching, Joanne? Me, I did. Well, I was one of those people that always wanted to teach. I always wanted to be a teacher. Um, I did my work experience at school in a school I always wanted to to teach and I, at that time I wanted to teach primary children uh, I did my degree and my master's degree and actually I was leaning towards going into journalism but when I was doing my degree I was volunteering in local schools and I actually come from uh, a coastal town on the coast of Yorkshire in England mm -hmm. and in that area it's a really kind of diverse community there's a few affluent people, but there's a lot of poverty and there's a lot of low aspiration. And I did become that person that wanted to make a difference. And so that was what attracted me to going into teaching. And actually through my, um, my master's degree, I was working in a secondary school in a particularly tough area and I loved it. 
And so what I did as soon as I finished my master's was I trained to teach and I did my placements there and then worked in my hometown for about the first three years of my career before I moved over to Leeds, which is a city in the north of mm-hmm. England and kind of moved from the coastal town to the um, inner city and worked there as well. So quite a, again, quite a diverse uh, experience as a teacher and, and did various roles as well through school. I've, I've, um, I've worked in, in school management. Um, I've done a lot with teacher training because that's where my kind of love for training teachers came from as well. So um, how did you go from being a classroom teacher to what you're doing now? Was there a, a major um, event or transition period or what happened there? I think it was because I'd, I'd worked in schools and I'd been working more and more with trainee teachers. Um, and I was really kind of becoming concerned about the way that teachers are trained, not in terms of the quality, because the quali- I think the quality of provision has always been there. It was around the opportunities given to trainee teachers in schools and uh, the support teachers were getting and the support that providers were giving to the trainee teachers too. And I saw a lot of people come through training and not continue. And that's quite tough. I think if you've worked really closely with people as a mentor, to see them, you know, appreciative of that relationship and, and do really well, but then feel that actually teaching at the minute, it was such a challenging time in state education um, that they weren't necessarily wanting to stick with it as a career. And we know that the the turnover in teaching is very, very high, that a lot of people come in do a few years and then leave and that's again we're talking very much about the state education in UK which is where I'm from my background as a teacher um Mm. and so I was working with those people and I got the opportunity to start to work for TES as a pathway tutor and so I was working on their ski courses so for people who do teacher training in the UK you're often offered a ski course when you apply which is a subject knowledge enhancement course um, and because I'm a GCSE examiner and, uh, you know, my background's in English, I was working as a ski tutor for um, trainee English teachers. And then I just gradually increased my role with TES when I started working for them because there was opportunities then to move across into actually running the training and um, delivering on the IPGC and the PGCE, which appeals to my more academic side. And that was why I, I kind of took that opportunity. I'm very interested in education research and how that informs teaching and making it practical. I, I kind of see a lot of um, research was coming through us as schools, as teachers, and we were sitting in meetings at the end of a long school day talking about initiatives and things we might try. But the opportunity to actually implement things is always quite tough when you're teaching full time. There's a lot of things happening in a day. You don't always get the the chance to plan in the way you want. And I think it's it's also appealing to me to try and make research and um, active inquiry for teachers more accessible so that people can create opportunities to do these things. It's going to be useful to them. It's going to help them hone expertise and kind of make them hopefully, you know, kind of reignite a fire if there's somebody who's been teaching a long time or help people that are just starting out as well to understand the, the kind of... Um, background of how pupils learn and how how we become really interested and hopefully creative and good teachers so do you feel that teaching has changed over the years i mean have you seen any changes any shifts over the years that you've been uh, in education 
Very much so. I think in the amount of policy that shapes what teachers do. Um, when I started teaching, it was in the early 2000s, um, we were very free to teach what we wanted to teach in the way we wanted to teach it. It was quite creative. The downside of that was that we I did see people, especially when I was training, who didn't do much with you know, their teaching, that, that were quite limited in, in how they were uh, engaging or not really engaging classes. And so I think and it did need to change. Um, but I know it depends really where you work because I, I think there's still freedom out there. Some some academy chains, and, and that's the big shift, the fact that we've gone to academization here in the UK. Um, so I, when I started teaching, we were under education authorities and we had uh, education authority advisors. Uh, now in academies, they're kind of self-govern, they're self-manage, and you often get people who come in to shape what you do. And I don't know if the, the freedom's still the same in that we used a very directed structure to lessons, very directed things that we were expected to show in lessons. However, I know that Ofsted was shifting and changing again and that um, they were taking a step back from that and wanting teachers to start to be trying to be more creative. And I think that's such an important thing. I think a lot of enjoyment in teaching comes from being able to plan your own learning and think about the activities you want to include when you teach and, you know, trying new things, new and different things. And I hope that that's the culture that I see in my students, that learners across the globe are being given those opportunities as teachers to try different things and to conduct their research. You know, we've read some really interesting assignments in the past year um, of, of education research that people are doing in their classrooms, even during COVID. And it's been really heartening, actually. What elements do you think make up a good class or a good lesson, in your opinion? A good lesson? Um, mm. Certainly, uh, the engagement is is key. So you've got to have interested students. But it really does depend on who's in front of you. And I think one of the biggest factors we have, and something we certainly work a lot on, is adaptive teaching, is being able to shape the teaching you do according to the children that are in front of you. And I think it's that recognition that not every class is the same and how you would teach one group of learners is very different to how you would teach another. And I think having that understanding of people needs and and kind of their, uh, the, the way that they respond to you, and it does come with time and practice too, uh, helps you to make interesting lessons because certain pupils need certain things. Um, mm. So I'd love to say creative sense of humor, lots of fun activities, but the reality is not every single class will respond to that. And I think it's so the adaptive teaching, that differentiation really is important. So what advice would you give to someone who is listening into the show and is thinking, I, I would like to train to be a teacher? What advice would you give to them or what warnings? <laughs> well, first of all, I would advise people to train to teach if they're thinking about training to teach. And I'm not saying that because I'm biased. I hmm. care deeply about my profession. And I honestly think teaching is such a rewarding job. It is difficult. It is challenging. But that doesn't necessarily have to be a negative. It can be a very positive thing because it drives you to change and adapt. And there is a lot of that in teaching. There's a lot of need to continually review and reflect on your practice continually be changing and updating the things that you do but I think if somebody was thinking about going into teaching I would strongly recommend spending
spending time in school. I think that's so important. And most schools are really willing, even in, in light of safeguarding, still very willing to have people come in as volunteers, people come in to just see what it's like to be a teacher and see what the work is because knowledge is power. I think it must be a very difficult to choose without ever having been in school apart from as a student yourself. So that's the best piece of advice I can give anybody. And that also helps when applying for teacher training because it gives you practical experience. So if you're in, in competition for places on courses, having had time in school will help you to um, get a place on training. If you can afford to and you want to, take in support roles. I see an awful lot of people going through a support route. So a lot of people in schools working as learning mentors or as uh, learning support assistants, teaching assistants, who are even in school administration, who start to take those steps and make the move into teaching. And that's a good way to make sure that the school environment is right for you. It also gets you kind of prepared for the culture of being in school too. Mm. Yeah, I've seen that a lot, Joanne, actually here in Qatar. I've seen people go through different routes, uh, all, all the ones you've mentioned, even from an administrative side, coming through to teaching to those who are more hands-on, like teaching assistants, etc. But I mean, do you think there are certain traits that make successful teachers? Are there certain innate um, traits that are there that you can't instill in someone? Or what are your thoughts on that? I think you need to be resilient in that you need to be willing to reflect and change. I think that's incredibly important. We teach such a lot of um, reflective practice on all our courses as an academic side to teaching. But the reality is, as teachers, is that's the fundamental to us, that we spend our lives thinking about what we did, what happened and how we can improve on that, how we can change it or a solution to look for a different way and not even in difficult circumstances not even when things don't always go precisely how, as you want them to go even when things go well or something's not quite being received in the way that you expected it to be we reflect all the time we sit in the staff room we talk to our peers our colleagues we even reflect with the students and I think that reflective kind of perspective and that willingness to to think about what we do and to want to seek change and 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 transformation of our practice and to to kind of develop is is really important i think you would get left behind very quickly if you were very close-minded so i think mm. positive being a positive person um understanding you know a, certainly a, um, an interest in children and i know that sounds really peculiar to say but i've seen people come into teaching who were doing it because they weren't sure of other options or they weren't quite, you know, they didn't really have a clear pathway and it seemed like an easy thing and they went to school so they could do it. <laughs> and the reality is you have to have a, a care of, of the pupils that you teach because that drives you to want them to enjoy lessons, to want them to do well. And that's where the success comes from, I think. When your pupils succeed at exams and things, yes, but also when they clearly enjoy having you as a teacher when they turn around to you at the end of the year and say, Miss, am I going to have you again next year for English? And I think that was my 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 kind of feeling of success as a teacher, that I felt, yes, I've done a good job here. Mm. Um, now, in, in all your 
your time in education, Joanne, you must have seen some uh, funny things as well, some mishaps. Uh, <laughs> is there anything you can share without embarrassing anyone or, or mentioning oh, any names? <laughs> oh, there's so many things. There's so many things. I'm trying to think. Pup pupils make me uh, laugh all the time. I think I learned, well, I tell it's not really a mishap, um, but it showed me, it taught me actually, and this is what I mean about reflection, that we can never make assumptions about children and we can never make assumptions about background. And a, a lot of what we do is around challenging assumptions. And I think we, I was a bit guilty of that, you know, making assumptions. And I was teaching in a really tough school mm -hmm. and the pupils there, I, I knew that we had to contextualize things for them because I understood that they didn't always get exposed to lots of cultural experiences. They didn't necessarily know very much about the world around them. So I was always quite cautious. But I remember teaching The Tempest by mm -hmm. Shakespeare, very famous uh, Shakespearean play, where Prospero is on his, um, his desert island. And to teach The Tempest it was a really challenging group of, of bo mainly boys. Um, I showed them a bit of the film Castaway with Tom Hanks. Mm -hmm. And so Tom Hanks is on the island by himself and he's, the plane has crashed and he's trapped and he sees the pilot's body floating in the water. And he goes into the sea and he pulls out the body from the water and he goes into the, the, the man's coat pocket to get out his wallet to look at his identification because he clearly wants to know who this man is and, you know, whether he's got family. So he's looking in the wallet and one of my year nines piped up, oh, miss, he can go to Tesco's now. And that to me just showed me that, you know, they, they didn't understand uh -huh. the fact that he was on a desert island. They thought he'd been choosing <laughs> to live. But that, that's, but that kind of thing happens. A lot. And it's just not really yeah. a, a necessarily like a hilarious like mishap. But mm. the things children come out with, but also the things you've got to be kind of attuned to as a teacher, if that makes sense. But the yeah. same group, the best moment ever, I think, working with them was when they were a group. They were tough boys, very tough, um, sort of year nine, so 13, 14 year old. Um, and they all were quite, quite challenging in personality and always telling us regaling us with quite horrific stories of the things they wanted to get up to on an evening and I always remember the one day when I went in and we used to at the end of a lesson when they'd had a successful lesson I'd let them pick some music to play mm -hmm. and the request I kid you not was let it go out of Frozen <laughs> and I put on first, then I put on Elsa. We watched the video, and, the, yeah. and it was glorious because they weren't doing it to be funny. They were just watching it in trance. Mm. And it was the bit where Elsa takes her hair down and shakes her head when she lets it go and she checks her head. And they were actually doing it in their chairs and shaking <laughs> their hair. And they just, and it was, you know what? It reminds me. And I think the thing again we need to remember is that 14 year olds, however big they are, and however scary they tried to put themselves across as being, are still very much children. And it was it was quite lovely. And I always carry that moment with me. Sense of innocence. Mm, very much so. That's good. That's good. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention, Joanne, I wanted to just really get your comment or your thoughts on this, actually. But again, in my reading, I came across this phenomenon of uh, learning loss, which is a after the summer holidays, it's a you know a well-known phenomenon, a well-researched phenomenon where children have forgotten a lot of what they'd been doing before. But 
in COVID times across the world, they're, they're calling this new phenomenon COVID slide, <laughs> which right. is basically uh, a very serious or very large learning loss or learning deficit. And uh, I mean, there are quite a lot of concerns. I was reading one article uh, that was from America. I mean, they were quoting a learning loss of up to a year. Uh, and even good students were still floating around three or four months. I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Do you think this is a real phenomenon? And, and if so, is it something that we should be concerned about? It's, it's so challenging because it's, again, children are so different to each other. And if you look at the rates of progress that children make over the course of a year, you will always have some children who can make accelerated rates of progress and some children who struggle to make those rates. And I think the same will come from this period. I would find it difficult to rely on what's been taught in the home over this period of time. And I'm, again, speaking very much from a UK perspective here, but I'm thinking mm. about the diverse backgrounds of pupils and that, okay, for every household where you've got a very dedicated area of study, you've got a good internet connection, you've got a laptop, you've got parents who will be there making sure the children are engaging. There will be homes where that hasn't happened. So I think we have to make the assumption that most children have a gap in knowledge, at least, of what would have been taught in those six months they've missed of school. Mm. How quickly they can improve on that, again, it would depend on the, the pupil. I honestly think for the majority of pupils, they will catch up very quickly. Um, because that's the right. Once they get back into school, back into the um, the flow and the function of being in school, and the reality that an awful lot of young years teaching and sort of key stage three teaching is is kind of consolidation of previous learning anyway. So mm -hmm. you're always going back over the skills they've already been taught. It might be a different topic, but the skill mm -hmm. sets are fundamentally very similar. Um, so one would hope that they will catch up quite quickly. I do like what they're doing in the UK, though, in that they are launching the mentoring service to be mm. able, so schools can pinpoint pupils where they feel they have got um, a, a genuine gap in knowledge and a loss and that they might not be able to keep uh, up with peers. They might not be able to make the, the gap up quickly. And I certainly think we have to look at strategies for it because potentially going forward, we face further lockdown and we first face um, further disruption to learning. So at the end of the day, I think time time's going to show us, but it certainly would be something if I was leading in school, you know, I'd be wanting to my my teachers to look very carefully at the progression and, and it's at this stage when they're in school and see mm. if there's concerns where we could put things in place, interventions in place to support them. Because my fear is here that the gap will get bigger. We've already got a gap mm. in attainment between um, uh, struggling pupils. And I think that it's likely that this will make it harder for them. So, mm. yeah, I think it probably is real for a lot of pupils. But hopefully we've got the tools in place to address that. What What are you doing where you're based? What are you doing in Qatar? Um, there's a wide range of things happening here, Joanne. Um, the Ministry of Education um, kind of issued some uh, instructions, and um, it's meant that now we've most schools have gone with a blended learning approach. So we've come back now at the start of this new term 
And um, you've got a scenario where it's 50% of the time, generally speaking, there's large, very, you know, some variations, but 50% of the time at home and 50% of the time in school, face-to-face learning. But that home time is a mix of, it could be live learning, so a live link to the classroom, or it could be simply set work, you know, which it may have a bearing on what they're doing in class or uh, it may be, you know, uh, it, it may not directly uh, as such. So uh, it's it's a challenging time and it's mm-hmm. developing all uh, every day, as, you, as I think as you, uh, you've already mentioned or alluded to, uh, there's always the imminent, you know, threat. I don't like to use that word or the uh, danger that we could, you know, be locked down again. And then we're we're fully online. And as you mentioned, I think there's something the article referred to. They call it the Matthew principle. You know, Matthew, the book in the Bible, where uh, I think they're referring to a verse which basically says the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. <laughs> Those that have get more. Those that don't have lose everything they have. Um, so you've got the good students can make strides forward. They can excel. Whereas the, the struggling students are the ones that were already having diffs are just going to be worse off at the end of it. So that is a concern, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. I think that's, and I, I, I believe that's where the focus will be um, yeah. on, for the mentoring service. And But again, time, it's going to be seeing what happens over these next kind of critical few months and if we get into the start of 21 and we've still had this kind of disruption there's going to have to be serious um kind of interventions put in place for some of these pupils because yeah you're quite right and I think that gap will just Mm. get get so big I mean the mentoring thing is is not something that I've heard of I've got to be honest I mean how does that work Joanne what does that look like as far as I know, it's working on the old one-to-one principles. It's not something I'm, I'm, I've read lots about, but I've seen that that's what they're launching. I know they were certainly uh, looking for people who'd be willing to work as one-to-one mentors to kind of launch a group of people who could go out and look at, at closing the gap of attainment for, for students that had struggled. Mm. Okay. I mean, that sounds like a really good idea, actually. Yeah. I'm not aware if it's happening here in Qatar. It may be. And in fact, for anyone listening into the broadcast, I would encourage you to please comment on our Facebook page. Uh, if you've heard of anything similar going on in Qatar, let us know. I'd be really interested to hear about it. So on a final kind of a philosophical note, what do you see as the future of teaching, Joanne, with the uh, disruption caused by COVID and the rise of technology and artificial intelligence and everything else that's going on in the world? What does the future hold for education and teaching? I think there's always been a shift towards online learning. Um, and certainly since we've had the internet and, you know, we've had uh, these massive online courses, all these different things you can do as adults online. And the fact that we're moving that shift now into that that approach into uh, children's education, certainly very interesting. How feasible it be with the, it will be, though, sorry, is uh, dependent on, you know, how parents work too and I don't think we could ever move to a home schooling um, online in the way that we have through coronavirus unless parents were working in a similar way and for for many people that's not possible so the reality is I think people still need their children to be in school and and clearly the socialization aspects are so important and it does worry me the impact of that actually 
on this generation of, of children. It's not just about the learning, it's about the mixing and, and the, their socialisation in school and, and learning to be people by being amongst people. And I think that's so so essential still. And also, and I'm, I'm completely in awe of the, um, my early years practitioners who've been doing online education with nursery age pupils. And I think that must be pretty tough. Um, yeah. And certainly something that is very research worthy for us on the course. Um, so I don't don't really know. I, I think I could see potentially blended learning. And certainly I would like to see more use of these kind of technologies um, when pupils are home learning, doing things like, like the homework. I think hopefully it will make more teachers feel confident to set and use, set work on and use the internet for supporting pupils um, with things like homework and exam preparation. I think schools are such important institutions, therefore, being together. And at the end of the day, we're people and we thrive on community and, and the school experience is, is far more than just the learning that is undertaken. And so I'm hoping there won't be a, a significant shift away from that. And I know how excited when I'm speaking to learners how excited people are that they're back in school with their children albeit in socially distanced classrooms and you know wearing um, visors and masks and things in certain countries and having to be very careful but they're so happy to be Mm. back in the classroom and I think it's been so isolating teachers were very sociable people so I think it's very challenging to suddenly go from being in a room where you're managing anything between 15 to 30 plus humans who, who are with you and you're communicating with them and you're engaging them to having to teach on a screen must is, is such a such a different way of doing things and so I think that that return to the, the classroom is so fundamentally important for all of us really. 